Cass. I'm Kat. I'm Georgia. And you're listening to Two Book Bitches. So for our listeners, we are here with Georgia Clark, the wonderful author of the very romantic book, It Had to Be You, which is coming out, I believe, May 4th. May 4th, yep. May 4th, coming up quick. Perhaps by the time they hear this, I think it might already be out. Yep, we're coming to you from the past. (laughs) (laughs) We're coming at you from the past, and now you're listening to this in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, So I stayed up last night to finish your book. (laughs) Thank you. And I finished it shortly before this, (laughs) but loved it. Yeah, I kind of ripped through it, I'm not going to lie. It was such like a nice, um, like breezy romance which I think is a nice break we tend to do like a lot of heavy fantasy novels yeah so it's always nice to have like a modern romance tossed in there every once in a while I agree yeah and we're not going to be too spoilery in this interview because we want you guys to go and pick up the book and read about the characters yourselves but we do have a bunch of questions for Georgia so Georgia yeah. if you're ready we can start I'm ready I'm so All excited right. thank All you for right. switching out your um your deep love a fantasy for some some modern rom-com I appreciate it oh Oh, we love a good modern rom-com yeah we like always ask it's always nice to just like take a break and like do a nice like modern rom-com that makes you feel like so good at the end you're like Mm -hmm. amazing it's like very satisfying and you don't have to follow books for years to know what happens next (laughs) (laughs) it just wraps up really nicely yeah but um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what they can expect when they read It Had to Be You? Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, my name's Georgia Clark. As you can tell from my accent, I am Australian, uh, not it. British, which is the other common uh, uh, mistake people make about me. <laughs> I, uh, I live here in Brooklyn and Williamsburg, and I've been in the US for 12 years, something like that. Love it. Love New York City. Never want to leave. Um, I And it had to be you with my fifth novel. I wrote two YAs and then two regular fiction books. So this is number five. Mm-hmm. And my first rom-com, my first like attempt at the genre. I had romantic storylines in all of those books, actually, mm-hmm. that I never like dove in headfirst and was like, it's going to be a rom-com. It's going to be like a rom-com on steroids. Um, and that's because there's not one, but five romantic stories in this book. Yes. Uh, there's five interweaving love stories that weave around a central, um, pair of mismatched wedding planners who, uh, run a business called In Love in New York here in Brooklyn. And, uh, the other storylines that both of those two wedding planners live and Savannah who are brought together by the death of Liv's husband, Elliot who leaves his half of the business to Savannah, his girlfriend, who didn't realize he was married. Uh, And she doesn't want to give up her shot, like her kind of big break. Uh, And she's excited to help Liv rebuild this business um, that does the most noble thing of all, which is celebrate people's true love for each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, they they both have a love storyline. And the other storylines are the vendors who work the weddings, the musicians and the caterers and the florists and the servers. And so it's like a behind the scenes of their lives um, and all of these people that are in the business of love. And Mm -hmm. so we get to see what their love lives are like. And it's very... Um, but hopefully funny and romantic and sexy and um, and I hope it's a good smart read that you will enjoy. 
can confirm it. was all of those things. Yeah. Right. It's very really like, um, uh, what's the, you know the movie Love Actually? Yeah, Love it Actually. Me, it gives me like so many, like those, those, all those movie vibes, like those rom-coms where there's a bunch of different storylines, like um, Valentine's Day. I don't know if you ever saw that mm-hmm. movie. Or um, He's Just Not That Into You is also another one. Like, it's like, just like a bunch of different stories that all kind of, everyone meets up at the end or they're all related somehow, which I love. I love those stories. They're always so intricate and beautiful and fun to read. So Yeah, ensemble. Love ensemble that. rom-com. Uh, I really like that genre too. Mm-hmm. And so the book has been compared to Love Actually, I think is the lightning rod that we tend to go to because it was probably the most successful of all those films. And it's... Um, so I've definitely used those, that sort of structural idea of having the interweaving, interconnected, they sort of like affect each other in little ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not like a retelling. No, <laughs> no, not in the slightest. To kind of no. everyone's expectations. There's a lot more diversity and a lot more inclusion yes. uh, than sure. that movie. It's a lot, like, it's it's Love Actually-esque in the sense of, like, the interweaving storylines, but the story itself is, like, 0%, like, yeah. it's, like, completely different characters, like, completely different storylines, and you're right, there's so much, like, beautiful diversity in it, and it's so, like, easy to read. It was just so wonderful to get to know all of these people and, like, their lives, so it was great. Um, speaking of inspiration, where did you get inspiration for your novel from? So this novel is really an example of life imitating art, art imitating life, as it tends to do, and is also really a story about persistence in the face of uh, failure. Mm -hmm. So I sold this book off a 25,000 word submission to my editor in fall of 2018, and it drinks afterwards with my agent. I kind of sensed that she, even though we'd sold the book, yay, that she didn't really like the submission very much. And mm-hmm. I asked her, do you think this book will sell? Do you like it? And she just like looked me dead in the eye and was like, no. And that was, you know, you have to listen to your agent. So what she expressed was the original take on the book was much darker. It was darker in tone. It was more spiky the character of Liv was like written to be sort of unlikable. Mm -hmm. And my agent really encouraged me to lean into the warmth of the premise. You know, we still had these mismatched wedding planners and she's like, you know, there's, I think there's like a really warm rom-com here if you slough off all of the darkness around it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and she was right. And over that, so I wrote the book over 2019 when I was also getting married myself. So I, it was a lot about, I was really thinking deeply about what are weddings? Why do we have them? What does it mean to be a bride? What traditions do I want to interweave into my new, you know, marriage um, to my, you know, then girlfriend, now wife? And what do we want to leave behind? And these are the questions that really in a, in a way, like all the characters are asking of themselves, like what, what do I want? What versus what do I feel like I should be doing? Mm-hmm. Everyone kind of comes to the book with their own, fairly rigid understandings of what it means to be in a relationship, what they want their romantic future to look like, what they want their ideal partner to be doing or be like. And over the course of the story, all of these sort of expectations and assumptions get kind of broken down for all of these characters as they renegotiate this 
line between tradition and modernity, which is basically what wedding planning is. You're, mm-hmm. you know, you're like, do I want to wear, do I want to wear a white dress or do I think I want to wear a white dress because everyone else has worn a white dress? And like, honestly, it's kind of, um, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. It's kind of like a mind fuck. So to wear um, away. <laughs> you're like, you just like, you're asking yourself these questions over and over again. So I was really thinking about weddings and then writing about weddings and a lot of this, character of savannah shipley who is sort of the innocent who comes into this world and has a lot of very like hopeful naive ideas about firstly what life is you know what how new york is going to be because she comes from the south and also just what weddings are like and she over the course of the novel is like realizing that you know wedding planning is to weddings kind of like what um like porn is to sex like they're vaguely in the same ballpark, mm-hmm. but they are very different things and uh that was also the realization that i was having as i was planning my own wedding i was gonna say when um when i think it was megan who reached out to or gina i can't remember who reached out first when they reached out to us about your book, they were like, oh, like we know that you're planning your weddings as well. And Georgia wrote this while she was planning her. So I was like, as I was reading this, Kat and I were talking about this before, I was like having like mini little planning flashbacks because we're still in the midst of it. So at that be- that beginning epilogue or at the beginning prologue point where like everything's kind of like going haywire and going wrong, I was like sweating a little bit and I'm like, oh my God, I hope that doesn't happen to me. <laughs> I was like stressed out. <laughs> well, something will always go like wrong on the day, however you want to interpret that. Our wedding was, uh, there was a couple of things that didn't go up to hit like to plan. One that like my wife was like, oh, who cares? I just don't even think about it. This I think about constantly because I like to torture myself (laughs) is that we, you know, we had like a horseshoe shaped um, and I mean, I I didn't even tell the guests this. So like, I I, I assume, I don't know if they're going to listen or not, but like basically we got our seating plan the wrong way around so that um, it was like meant to be a horse, kind of like a horseshoe shape. But when we kind of got there, they sort of flipped it around. So it just wasn't, how I'd imagined it, um, minor, minor. And it was also the hottest day of the year. It was a oh hot wave. It was in the middle of July and it was in the, the temperatures were in the high nineties the whole time, the whole wedding weekend. And so everyone, like you can't even imagine that kind of heat now, but it's just like walking out into an oven. Um, and everyone was sweating, like everyone was sweating through their nice clothes. <laughs> like forget suits like they was just everyone was like sweating like literally through their pants oh my gosh um and I had worn thank god a cotton dress because it was going to be high summer I knew it was going to be hot and I was like yeah I don't want to spend the whole day sweating in polyester so uh I thank god had a cotton dress on and the, the you know didn't and, and because it was like I think lined with some cotton it didn't sweat through but my god we were these sweaty messes but everyone was like on the same page like yeah. in the same yeah everyone was having the same experience so it kind of made it really fun at least you're all sweating together yeah exactly we uh saw the pictures of of, of your wedding on your instagram and look beautiful though you beautiful like with the confetti it looked great it looked beautiful i would never have known how hot it was <laughs> yeah yeah that's true no the photos were really great i do advise investing in a good photographer oh yeah 100 percent um i was gonna say i'm like a big sucker for weddings like i don't think it matters whose wedding i go to i cry every single time 
Oh yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. It's just I'm so sweet. Every single like, you know that that good like good news movement Instagram account. Oh yeah. Post. I'm like weeping, and I'm like I actually feel like I've got to unfollow them because like I'll be like in the middle of my day, like okay, I got to ride and pay some bills, make some lunch, and then I'm like looking at a photo of like an old man work, walking a turtle and just like sobbing. I'm like I just can't have this level of emotional instability on a daily basis. <laughs> it's like it's only two p.m. I can't I can't function like this yeah. right now. <laughs> Was your wedding planning process very smooth or did it kind of like mirror the little bit of uh, chaos that went on in the book? Great question. Um, we didn't have a wedding planner to, to everyone's surprise because they're like, aren't you writing a book about wedding planning? And I'm like, yeah, I know we're on a budget and um, you know, we just can't afford that. So I, my wife and I planned it ourselves and I'm, I, I have an event series. Like I host a storytelling event called Generation Women. It's like a live storytelling show. Like I work in events, you know, partly as part of my, you know, side hustles, multiple side hustles and was felt like, yeah, I think I've got a good handle on this. And my God, it just spirals out of control so quickly. And I think one thing that came up for me uh, was that I didn't realize the emotional sort of impact that marrying an American in America would have for me as an Australian. Mm. When I left Sydney at 29, I just couldn't get on that Qantas flight fast enough. I felt like I'd met everyone I was ever going to meet. I'd slept with half of them. I just didn't want to be like in this <laughs> tiny town anymore. But it was like, like my hometown, you know, it was mm-hmm. like, and your hometown, you have to leave it at some point, I think, even if you come back. And so I'm like, I got to get out of here. And then after, you know, cut to a decade later and I'm like, yeah, I can really appreciate my small, very safe, very sunny country with great healthcare uh, <laughs> a little more now, even though I do love living in New York. Mm-hmm. But like when I, when we were sort of really starting to make it official, like I proposed, she said, yes, we're getting married. I started to realize like, oh, this is really going to cut me off from Australia in a new way. Like firstly, mm-hmm you know, like a lot of my friends and like my fam, like small family were coming over, of course, but it was going to cost them a fortune. And like a lot of my friends were just like, I can't afford the thousands mm-hmm. of dollars and the, you know, the many week, weeks it would take to justify a trip that is literally halfway around the planet to come to your wedding. Yeah. And it was quite confronting. And so there was things that you don't expect are going to come up kind of bubble to the surface. Like in every like little issue you have as a couple will sort of, come out and you know for us it was like things like money money is a problem for everyone like we Uh should be live in a communist society and have no money i wish that was the case um because it is such an issue for everyone and of course like weddings are just it's just so much about like god it costs how much for a freaking cake like you kidding Mm -hmm. me so Um, true but yeah, so there wasn't, uh, there were some parts that I lifted directly from my life um, in this book, but luckily we didn't have the multiple disasters that, that, un, that unfurl on the pages. That's good. I want to be one of those brides where it's like, if something bad happens, please just don't tell me. I don't want to know. Yes. You could tell me like years later, be like, you know, remember at your wedding, you know, like this fell on, you know, I just want to know like later, never tell me the day after. Yeah, like, you don't, don't tell me your 
like whoever's coordinating or whatever, just tell them that. Be like, I just want to be completely oblivious. To yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna. I will ventilate in a bag for sure if something goes wrong. I'm not gonna let that happen to you, Kat. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> We're going to go to list, and it's gonna have like ten phone numbers on it, and none of them are gonna be yours. You contact those ten people first, and then if you still cannot solve it. It's fine. We're still not telling her. Yeah, don't, don't want to know. Yeah, <laughs> you stay oblivious for as long as possible. Yeah. No, the sticker shock to weddings was insane, and also like the invitation politics is crazy. All oh, the politics. Yeah. yeah. All of these people. I'm like, who are you, and why are we inviting you? <laughs> oh man, it was it was. Enough. I mean, planning a wedding during COVID has probably been wildly different than planning it not during COVID. <laughs> Um, yeah, which has probably right. been mine and Cass's biggest problem right now, planning our weddings during COVID. Lots of stress. Not fun. Not fun. No. Don't recommend it. Yeah, no, I really feel for you. It must be so tough. It's uh, It's been fun, but it's been like weirdly stressful. So, eh. It's for who? <laughs> but for you, not for me. I'm trying to keep positive. That's okay. what I try to do. I try and keep positive about the scenario to the best of my abilities. Um, I don't know how well that's working out these days though. So we'll see. Yeah. But um, another question for you, um, kind of talking about what you were mentioning about like traditional wedding ideals and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, initially for your two main characters, um, Liv and Savannah, they seem that they're, seem like their wedding ideals like didn't necessarily match up at first and they're like this constant a concept of like feminism and weddings as we know them is constantly brought up so how did you aim to like challenge the traditional like wedding ideals and how did you address the whole like feminist and like wedding enthusiast idea as well in your book yeah it's a great question um i i knew i wanted to write about weddings i knew i wanted to have uh like multiple weddings sort of careening through them through the eyes of the people that put them together which I thought would be interesting and fun and you know that there would be um kind of juicy mm -hmm. and as soon as you kind of scratch the surface it's you be, it becomes very clear that weddings have are now and have always been uh, just complicated for women um, mm -hmm. and non-binary people because there's just so many like gender stereotypes that are just baked into the idea even just the fact that women mostly plan them like more unpaid emotional mm -hmm. labor and mm -hmm. actual labor that's mm -hmm. yeah um, which is very frustrating and actually in the book uh part of what Liv um who is the sort of the owner of the business with her mm -hmm. husband like part of their shtick was that and what made them like a popular uh company was that the fact that like there was a man in the room would mm -hmm. make the if it was like a straight couple like the grooms feel like oh i can be a part of this like, mm -hmm. i can find my way into this planning process that was their kind of angle um but it was it's interesting and then the way that i and you sort of identified it got to talk about the wedding idealist which is very fun and light like a, a more um positive spin on weddings and mm -hmm. then the wedding realist who is live is through these two characters and but I did want to sort of signal to the reader early on that it would have, um, you know, like a feminist lens or there would be that we're acknowledging the um, problematic nature of the wedding industry. Mm -hmm. And so early on, there's a scene with Liv and two of her friends who are a couple, they're florists, they all work weddings. 
and they just sort of say point blank, we all know the wedding business, like the wedding industrial complex is a hysterical money pit designed to emotionally mm-hmm. manipulate couples into spending money. Like we know that. I think so by having them say that, that, you're kind of like winking to the reader. Like mm-hmm. we can acknowledge that this is the case. Yeah. But on the other hand, people are always going to get married. They're always going to hire wedding planners. So mm-hmm. why not you? And here's the reasons why you do it well, because you don't upsell people on things they don't really need. And you put the budget first and then plan something that's appropriate for the couple. Yeah. So, and Savannah is definitely a character who comes in, who uh, is way more starry eyed about the whole thing um, and about her own life in so many ways. She has like unrealistic expectations of a lot of things because she is also very young. Like Savannah is 23 years old. Yeah. And- I was very in a very naive and wide-eyed in a different way, like culturally we're different, but I can still very much relate to having these like big dreams that I'm pretty sure the world's going to make happen for me, you know? (laughs) Um, And, you know, some of them did and some of them didn't, but I liked the dynamic between the two of them because it, it, they kind of teach each other as you go through the book. They, yeah. they soften each other up and mm-hmm. they rise each other up. You know, mm-hmm. They sort of get to meet in the middle a little more. Yeah. That was one thing that really resonated with me throughout the book was that like challenging wedding ideals, but also, you know, acknowledging the fact that people love weddings. It's an important part of someone's life. Cause I think myself, like when I, when I plan, I'm like, oh, like, why do we do this? You know, like the handoff of the father of the bride to the groom and all of these like other ideals that I'm like, it makes no sense to me, but it's like ingrained in society and like wedding culture to do it. So that resonated with me quite a bit during the book. It was enjoying to like read it. It was enjoyable to read about it just from like their wedding planning perspective as well. Yeah, good. Um, speaking of live in Savannah, how did you settle on the direction of Liv and Savannah's relationship? Like, I feel like it could have been this very easily like classic, I hate you scenario, but it wasn't, it was so different. Um, so how did you kind of go about deciding that? Yeah, that was, that was tricky. Um, because when, when Liv meets Savannah for the first time, and this isn't really a spoiler because it's in like the opening pages, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, like eight days or, or sort of something like that after Elliot's untimely death. Uh, and she has a son, you know, she has a business with this man, she has a son. And so not only is she dealing with the fact that she now uh, like has her business is in the toilet and her son doesn't have a father and her, and, and her husband was cheating on her with someone that he'd been seeing for six months. Mm-hmm. Um but this woman shows up and says like, I have a copy of this will and I'm in the will and we own this business together. And it's, I think that obviously Liv's knee jerk reaction is um, pretty cruel. And um, you know, as Savannah sort of says, like, I know that I'm, she, well, she thinks it to herself, like I'm just no more than like a few mean words inked in a bathroom stall. Like I, I get what this woman thinks of me, but she really wants to prove otherwise mm-hmm. um, to, to live. And I mean, I think this sort of the way for any way, the way forward for any of these things is to truly ground people's reactions in the way, the ways that humans react to things. Mm. And that's something that, you know, a good editor will also help you with, but you're constantly, I'm constantly asking myself, like, is this true to the character? Is this how a person would react? Mm -hmm. And 
I think for most people, we can also understand like where blame should be assigned. Like, is it fair to blame someone who had no idea that their partner was married? Probably not. Mm-hmm. And that really what their, their kind of distance is, is they are just culturally very different. Mm-hmm. So in an, like, even just sort of taking out how they know each other, Liv is a born and bred New Yorker. She's Jewish. Um, you know, she's a, she's a mom, she runs a business, she's 49, you know, she's very different from a, um, a blonde, bright-eyed southerner who's never really kind of flown, like, far beyond her home, you know, state of, um, she's from Kentucky. Like, they're just culturally completely different. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing I really enjoyed, it's always really fun to take two characters who are completely at the other end of the spectrum from each other and work them together. Mm-hmm. That is really how a rom-com works. And they are the central pairing of this rom-com, even though they're not, it's, they, they don't have a love story with each other. Mm-hmm. Like live straight. And, uh, you know, we sort of un- discover things about Savannah as we go along, but like, the, I liked that they were, this was this, pl- like their platonic friendship was the mm-hmm. central pairing that made it really interesting and sort of just to work out how to edge them together until uh, they have a new understanding of the both themselves and each other. And it's, I guess it's like a tonal thing, just trying to kind of keep that tone um, like, you know, like pacey and, and fun and zippy, whereas also having room to acknowledge who these women are and mm-hmm. what their struggles are and what mm-hmm. they're like thinking through as they, work out their you know place in this crazy world yeah their relationship was quite deep like it didn't it didn't go the way I expected it to go so I was like it was really nice to read about them they were they were good I like how you touched on the little like you know like they're kind of like the central pairing because I feel like this book has a lot of not a lot but I would say like remnants of like those typical like rom-com tropes like Forced proximity or mm-hmm. um, things like that, and it's so fun. Do you have like a favorite rom-com trope? Oh gosh, so many. Yeah, I really wanted to write the book as like the love letter to rom-coms. So it's when I was designing all of the pairings, I really wanted to work pretty like like openly with tropes because mm-hmm. I think tropes are really fun. And I think, and what I also like about tropes is you can start with something that is, that almost reads like a cliche. And that was what I did with one of the pairings, Zia and Clay. Clay is a, um, an actor. So when we meet him, he's like a pretty well-known actor, uh, action movie star. And Zia is a server at um, a wedding. So it's a waitress meets movie star, like a classic trope. You know, we sort mm-hmm. of, we've probably seen that story before. And I, I really like this idea of like, and I wanted the sort of assignment I gave myself was like, okay, waitress meets movie star, like go, <laughs> like make it work, make it real, make us really believe that these are two people who, despite their radical difference in class, like very, like she's not a wealthy server, like she's mm-hmm. struggling to get by. She's a, sort of like a free spirit um, who works um, around the world uh, for a nonprofit. Um, and to bring them together in a way that we truly feel that these people are really good together mm-hmm. and that will really make each other happy and that they are equals. And that's not like not easy to do because of really, because of the class difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's not like, um, and also like there's a, a gender difference as well. Like Clay has a lot of male privilege. 
And so that's like, again, like it's like a really fun challenge. So I really like working from that sort of trope. I love a fake relationship trope. So I do have a fake relationship in there. Like nothing is sexier than a fake relationship. Um, (laughs) Pretending you're not into someone while you're pretending to date. Like, oh, it's great. Um, So we have a fake relationship trope between the two musicians, Zach and Charlene, two Mm -hmm. of my favorite characters. Um, And there's sort of... um, like an, they sort of also have like an enemies to lover kind of thing mm-hmm. going on. So yes. it's like, like so much fun. Um, and yeah, and like strangers to lovers. I like I mean, anything to lovers is going to be fun. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I like the idea of um, a, a classic trope and then getting in there and digging around and finding something unique and interesting to do with it um, to make it feel fresh for yeah. a modern audience. Mm-hmm. We love tropes on this podcast. Yeah. So speaking about, you know, all the romances and different tropes that you used in your novel, um, obviously all the romances, all the relationships, they felt very like authentic, fresh, modern. Um, Like none of your characters seem like these perfect people with perfect lives. So how did you again go about writing these modern, diverse romances in this novel? I definitely was really important to me that there was going to be a a diverse and inclusive cast. Like there was Mm -hmm. like, you know, we don't need to see like all white people. Like we have friends, like, you know, like that show. (laughs) I love it. But like, my God. Um, And I think that what's important for me and what I really like about like diversity is not just because like, it's the right thing to do. Like Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't feel that way. I feel like what's exciting is if you're writing about someone's experience who you're not familiar with, like you're not part of a subculture or you're not part of that, then you're really learning something new mm-hmm. about how other people operate in the world. And that's very, I find that very interesting. All I want to work out is how are people living? Like how are people mm-hmm. living their lives? Like what do they really think? Like I don't need your perfect Instagram filter. Like I want to know how you act when no one else is around, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the other flip side is if it is a subculture that you re- um, that you are a part of, and for me that's like the queer community, I really like seeing myself reflected in popular mm-hmm. culture in a way that feels like they're just nailing it, like they're just mm-hmm. like nailing me, and I'm I'm either just like discovering something maybe a little bit new and different about the intricacies of my own subculture, or better yet, I'm seeing it reflected back to me in a way that feels very celebratory mm-hmm. and validating. Um, and so when it came to developing all the characters, I, um, my editor, I work with a freelance editor before I submit in house, which I recommend doing for all aspiring writers. And one thing that she said to me once was, um, you don't, like you don't and shouldn't have to start with someone. And this is, I feel like it's like a common movie thing where it's like the character who's like, got everything, like everything in her life is going great. Like she's got a great relationship, a great job. She's got a great relationship with her family. She's got a great apartment and then something goes wrong. And that's never the case. Like maybe at moments you'll feel like you're kind of cruising. You're like, things are pretty good right now. Like work's good, my relationship's good. But there's always something that's kind of going on. And I think partly that's because we live incredibly complex lives and that's Mm -hmm. the human condition. Like we're not people who are just um, operating has like cardboard cutouts who like are going through life happy until, oh my God, I have a terrible new neighbor who I'm in Mm -hmm. love with, you know, like that's just not really how life is. And so I always like to like meet characters in the middle of their lives. Mm -hmm. They have 
lots going on. They already, you, you want to really have a deep understanding of what their issues are. And, and part of that is just being like an interested in human nature. Like I'm yeah. just interested in people. I'm interested in people's paradoxes and their contradictions and their self-contrast, their self-conflicts, like how people, you know, move through the world, say one thing, do another, like we all do it. It's, it really is just natural and normal, but I'm obsessed with it. And I, and I love, um, and creating characters that feel very rich and grounded and real. And mm-hmm. then, so when you kind of see them, uh, you know, like have a crush on someone or get a little flustered around someone, I think you can really, you feel it in a way so much more than if you don't actually buy that this person is a human being, you know? Yeah. I was going to say that characters have like a really high buy-in, like no matter who the character is, you just, they're so messy, but in such real ways, it's like, exactly like you said it's real life like no one's life is cookie cutter at any given moment like usually you know when you look at someone there's a bajillion things going wrong like behind whatever they're showing you so Mm -hmm. it was nice to read about like messy characters that had a lot going on it was great real essentially and like relatable you could kind of put yourself in their shoes in that way yeah because I think too sometimes like romance novels it can be like the unattainable romance you're like oh I'm never like I'm never gonna meet that ideal which like a perfect relationship perfect man a perfect woman fall in love and it's like that you know you never it's never gonna happen like that so Mm -hmm. it's nice to see real like a story told about like real relationships that you could really see actually happening in real life yeah so it was was a nice um change of pace it was good thank you yeah and also just like I think that we overestimate, I think particularly because of film and television, how much audiences want to see beautiful people. And especially, I think, in the novel, you can, uh, even though, you know, there's a lot of attractive characters in this book, it's not like a cast of characters of people who are all, um, like, professionally pretty or could be be professionally pretty. And I think that we we sort of overestimate how, how important that is. And I, I think in a book, it's really not important at all because um, you, you know, you might have like an idea and certainly it's fun to sort of have like uh, a, a, a crushable character who's a super mm-hmm. body. But I think that what we are, we like relate to more and get into more is their personality mm-hmm. and, and what their kind of struggles are. And so a lot of like my favorite, like book boyfriends, book girlfriends, book non-binary people are like not always the most beautiful, but the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. We always, we talk about it on the podcast too, because sometimes we do fan casts of the books, but a lot of the time we say we don't really picture anyone in specific. It's almost like a, like, just, like a blank face when I'm picturing characters. Yeah. It's like a completely personality and who they are, the character, and then what they look like. Yeah. Yeah, I just kind of have like, for some, some people I have a, a clearer idea than others, but it's sort of like, a, like a, it's like when you remember a dream, like, it, like mm. it's just this sort of vague idea of someone yeah. and mm-hmm. it's about, for me, like their voice, like I have to really drop into their voice and hear their voice. Yeah. Um, I do kind of have like a, a, you know, a basic out, you know, like, are they tall, short, like, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. But like, as far as the specifics go, it's, it's more the vibe. The vibe. Yes. <laughs> the vibe. What's their vibe? Like, what, is it a what energy do they put vibe? Like, hundred yeah, percent. How did you kind of go about writing? 
and juggling honestly so many characters with such unique voices like I think sometimes when you read a book with different characters it can be hard to pick out who's who but I feel like I had a pretty easy time like even if you know the character wasn't explicitly named like who was doing the scene or who was in the scene so how do you go about juggling so many characters with unique lives and unique voices yeah that's definitely the challenge of ensemble right mm-hmm. because um most of the time in especially in in rom-com you've just got a central pairing and then a supporting cast mm-hmm. and so you're generally going to be either it's either all just from one person's point of view or it's just from two and it's pretty sort of easy to work out who it is but in ensemble this is 10 characters so i um i work with index cards so for every uh scene i have just every now and again if i need to see the book as a whole um i'll have on each index card uh they're color coded for each couple Hmm. so and then i just have like a one line of the scene and then i can place it out on the ground and I think in this book there was about 70 chapters so it's like 70 cards and that way I can see as I'm working where other you know where's too much of one color where's too much of one character basically Mm, like where do I want to see someone else um so that there is it feels like there's somewhat of an even flow even though some characters have more like live in savannah um, have more scenes than some other characters that just you just don't want to have too much of them uh, at any one time, mm-hmm. and just sort of part of it is gentle reminders for readers, um, and that early on you sort of do it in a way that it shouldn't be obvious to you that that's what's happening, but it's like just kind of reminding you of like remember they're the florists, you know, like it's like oh yeah that's right, and mm-hmm. Henry younger than Gorman, like you know, or just mm-hmm. something just like little um, cues so that you're kind of picking it up because yeah like 10 characters is a lot and Mm -hmm. it's very easy to feel overwhelmed you also and these are all like kind of technical things but you basically can't you can't introduce 10 people in one scene (laughs) i mean even though we kind of get an opening scene where a lot of the characters appear i knew that readers wouldn't remember them all it was more a sense of like we're lives life and all of these vendors are kind of like circling around her and we're just kind of getting a sense of like what it's like to be a wedding planner when there's lots of vendors coming at you but we don't need to remember who they are and if you kind of go back you'll appreciate and after you read the book if you read that scene again you'll be like oh they were all there in that scene and that's cool um but yeah there's sort of and i just do this as well because the book i'm writing right now is another ensemble rom-com and it's more like you start with your kind of main character spend some time with them and then kind of slowly open the world up. Mm-hmm. So you're not asking readers to remember 10 people, like one, two, three, four, five, six, it's too many. And then they're kind of, and sometimes like you want to mention a character a few times. That was like a little edit that was made. Uh, like with Zia and Clay, my editor was like, have, have Savannah talk about Clay before we meet him. Like mm. we can kind of see his place in society through the eyes of someone else. Um, and before we meet him, because originally we just kind of met him in like almost like a cold open kind of thing, where mm. he's like in a hotel room and here's this guy called Clay. Whereas in the edits, uh, like Savannah then has an NDA that she's excited for everyone to sign because Clay Russo is here. You know who Clay mm. Russo is? You don't know who Clay Russo is? Oh my God, Clay Russo. Like he's, he's said his name a few times. So when we see him, we're like, this is the guy that Savannah was talking about. Like, like, oh. like, like I get it. So there's just kind of like little things like that that you can do. Yeah. 
I actually liked that. Like, it was always a constant reminder. Because, like, me, I'm always bad with characters. After a chapter, I'm like, wait, who was that again? So, like, the reminders were great. And I didn't appreciate, like, now that you're mentioning that first scene, that, yeah, all the characters were there. And now I'm realizing, oh, yeah, they were all there. And I didn't even realize it until you mentioned that again. But it's really cool. And that's probably why I love ensemble tropes so much. It's like, all these characters are being mentioned constantly by other people. And then you actually get to see their role in the story as well, as opposed to just this character that's like mentioned or you see him once in a scene. So I love that about the book. Yeah, I think an underused technique um, is we spend a lot of our lives talking about our friends and family, like Mm -hmm. not bitching about them, but just like discussing (laughs) them, like trying to figure out why they said something or what Mm -hmm. they're doing, or we just like discuss their lives. Like we, we spend a lot of time commenting on the lives of our friends and family and Mm -hmm. you don't often see that happening in fiction. But um, again, like it's another way to gain insight into not only the character who's talking, but the character they're talking about. And you can also like see that interesting gap because often we make assumptions about our friends and family that Mm -hmm. are wrong. And I think it's really interesting to kind of play that out as well and have something like, well, she said that because like, obviously she was like, didn't want me there. And then we sort of realized that, oh, this person was actually going through like a breakup and didn't tell you about it, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever. And it's like, oh, these things that we don't know um, that really contribute to this society where often we're all in our, you know, like weird little silos and not talking to each other. I think you can kind of have fun with that in fiction a little bit. Yeah. No, it's exactly like Kat said. Sometimes I read books and I'm like, reading a chapter and then a character is like not mentioned again for a bajillion years and then when they are brought up again I'm like oh my god I feel like I get whiplash a little bit like what who's that again wait let me go like flip back 20 chapters to figure it out so it's nice all those like little reminders here and there of like who's who who's talking about who who's invested in whose relationship like it was really really nice um to read that it was really good I enjoyed that Great. So with all the characters that you had to write and all their different perspectives, who would you say is your was your favorite character to write? And then also who was like the most challenging or your least favorite to write? I really, I do really love all of my characters. I know that people say that, but I truly <laughs> do. I when, I when it's really working, I feel like a director working with a great cast and mm-hmm. coming into work every day and everyone's like excited to be there. They're on top of their game. They're like thrilled to be part of this project, you know, um, which is, I, I went to school for, for screenwriting and filmmaking and that's what I spent some time in my twenties trying to do. Like I wrote a lot of screenplays and made short films and was more in screenland before I came to New York and then kind of pivoted slightly into novels. So I still had that, feeling of being like in charge of this amazing cast that I'm like lucky to work with. So it was honestly really fun to work with everyone. I, um, I really liked being in Gorman's head. Actually, he is like in his fifties, he's, um, gay and, uh, very sardonic and Mm -hmm. kind of sarcastic. And I think that he's a bit of a dark horse and, I, I just really liked being in his head. I have some kind of friends like that and mm-hmm. um, who I really like. And um, he's ambivalent about, he doesn't want to get married. He thinks mm-hmm. he's from, like it's a different idea for him gener- gener- because of his generation than his partner who is um, in his late 30s. There's like a, a couple of decades between them and who does want to get married. And so he was just kind of like a fun um character to to sort of get to play with 
Uh, also, Zach. Zach was just uh, a delight. Um, he was probably my most fun character. And when I conceived of him, it's like sometimes when you meet characters, it's like you meet them and you have as much knowledge as if you were just to kind of meet someone at a party. Like mm. in a basic sense of who they are, you have like their best face kind of thing, but you really haven't spent like a lot of time with them. And eventually over the course of like writing a book, you spend so much time, you're like basically sitting in their therapist's office. Like you just like have a full download of who they are. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always come straight away. I do find, and it's happened to me on multiple books where characters have like halfway through, like confessed something to me. <laughs> it sounds weird, I know, but like it'll often be something where maybe a reader will say, I just didn't really understand, like, why does she not want to have a baby or something? Or like, why does he feel so bad about himself? And then you kind of go back in and then you realize like, oh, this character had like a miscarriage or this mm -hmm. character, it's like family doesn't like them. Mm -hmm. And you sort of, it, it really does feel like you've earned, I know this sounds really woo-woo, but like it just sounds, it feels like you've earned their trust and that they're mm. comfortable telling you things. Some characters will just tell you everything straight away. It's like, I was born here and I did this and I did this and I did this and this is who I am and this is everything about me. And some characters are just like not like that at all. They're way more reticent, um, which is often just true to their personality. And But Zach was someone who... Off the bat, I was just like, oh, you're like a saucy Brit. You're a total horn dog. You're a flirt. Um, you were fun you were, and you're good looking and you know it kind of thing. So like fun. But then when I spent time with him, I really realized how much of that was partly a defense mechanism. Yeah. His river just ran a lot deeper than I thought. And once I kind of got into his family life and the where he fit into his family, um, it made a lot more sense and things yeah. really opened up and I had so much more empathy for him. And like, I kind of came like Darlene, who is his, um, you know, half of his partnership, his and his professional bandmate, like they work together is fairly dismissive of him at first, even though she is desperate to bone him, even though <laughs> she doesn't know it. Um, and I, I feel like I was more aligned with her. And then as it came around, I really decided to see, this other side of him which was very fun and sweet yeah it's like when you first meet him he's like all over the bridesmaids and you're like oh okay I know who you are but then yeah as you read more about him it's a lot deeper than that yeah I think it's really interesting when you when I love meeting people's families I just want to meet I want to meet your families I want to meet everyone's families because <laughs> you just you understand someone in like it's like you've only been in the one room in the house with them and you meet someone's family and you see the whole house, you know, mm -hmm. you're like, Oh, like I get why you're like, cause I'm such a product of like my parents and, mm -hmm. and it's just so like, I, like I understood my wife so much clearer when I meet her family and understand the role she plays in her family. So, and again, like another good kind of like, I guess, writing tip is if you really want to understand like a character, like you have to understand their role in their family unit. And, and and how they're like their parents and how they're not like their parents. That's really interesting. I feel I like, like I haven't yeah. heard that tip before for writers, but that's, I love that, about learning about a character through their family. Yeah, I feel like that's something we do subconsciously in real life. Like whenever I meet people's family and sometimes I see like interactions, I'm like, oh, that's why you are the way you are. But it's interesting that, yeah, like Kat said, that you put it out there as an actual writing tip. Um, in terms of writing, you probably wrote one of the most like non-corny beautiful wedding speeches near like the end of this novel um speeches toasts, things like that and i 
I just want to know, help me out here. Uh, what's the recipe for a solid wedding speech? Because I feel like I've got a couple to make in these next little yeah. in this little while. So any tips would be very appreciated. Oh, it's so funny that you mentioned that. After we got married, uh, we had a mini moon. We, so we went to our hotel for the two nights right after the wedding weekend wrapped mm -hmm. up. And we were so on a high from the whole thing. And one of the things we were really on a high about was all of the beautiful words that were spoken oh. like to us and also the, like our own vows and speeches, which I felt really proud of. And actually we ended up, my wife and I launching um, a business called gathered here, gatheredhere.co, which is helps people write speeches and toast for weddings. We launched it in March, 2020, bad time to launch a wedding business. Um, so like it's on the internet, but like, you know, it's, um, I guess it's, we'll wait till wedding season ramps up again. And because I really was, I was so excited to like write my vows and so excited to write a speech. And a lot of the times at weddings, like that's something that people like leave to the last minute or just mm -hmm. kind of wing it. And um, the, the, I think you're, I know the, uh, the wedding words that you're um, talking about at the end of the book, they were, that's what I was talking about earlier when I was saying some things were lifted directly from my own experience. Like that's my, that was from my wedding vows. Oh, stop. I'm going to cry. That's so sweet. I'm literally dying. That's the best. Cause I, I like teared up when I was reading them and I was like, this is so sweet and so genuine. I'm like, I've never heard of it. That's really nice. I'm a big baby. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Like the whole company um, for like helping people write speeches. That's crazy. I have to yeah. look this up. I know. I was going to say. My yeah, gather, gatheredco.co. And so the idea was that we have a template that you can um, use for speeches. And then we work one-on-one -on -one with couples for vows um, uh, once weddings start up again. Because I really love um, speeches and, and vows, like especially at a wedding. I mean, it really is, as a writer, it's just, it's, you know, a great high stakes moment where you want to make a huge impact in a very short period of time. And, um, and I, and it's just, you know, it's a time when you are expressing a, a lot of feelings and mm -hmm. emotions in a way that shouldn't, like you said, be cheesy or corny, but that should definitely have people tearing up and that's oh, yeah. hard to do. And that's kind of something that, um, I feel like I'm pretty good at. So, I hope that once wedding season gets back up and running again, I get to do it again for people. Does, uh, does this count for like maid of honors too, or is it just the groom and bride? Yeah, yeah. No, so it's basically <laughs> if you're speaking any words at a wedding. So, um, and I did, I got to do one right before we shut down and it was for uh, a maid of honors uh, speech. Because mm -hmm. most people just don't know what to say. And we just do like an interview I ask them a bunch of questions, people just talk, and then I reshape their own words into the toast. So like, it's not, we're not writing anyone's, you know, like making up memories or anything, but it's just, it's really just a lot of editing. That's it? really beautiful. Cause we're, yeah, we're each other's maid of honors. Yeah. So sometimes I'll like think of something and I'll write it in my notes app and I'm like, oh my God, I just made myself cry with that. But I like save all these little things and, it's, it's like so hard to put like a whole relationship in like a three minute speech. It seems so daunting. So that's so interesting that you have like a whole business or I'm literally going to Google it after this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a running notes 
document on my phone too, but <laughs> it's getting longer and I'm like, how am I going to condense this? I don't know. Yeah. But I yeah, love this. Text yeah, that's great, that's yeah. a great tab, website to have for people. That's, that's so cool. I'm going to do like a 15 minute presentation at your wedding with my whole <laughs> speech. Leave <laughs> <laughs> room for that. Yeah. Please factor it into the time. I appreciate it. <laughs> I guess we have, I think we have one more question, right, Kat? Yeah. Um, so you have been giving so much advice during this interview for writers, mm-hmm. um, and lots of tips, which has been amazing. As a lot of our own listeners are aspiring uh, writers themselves and mm-hmm. want to be a writer one day. So are there any uh, other tips or any other advice that you can give um, aspiring writers out there? Oh. So many. Um, I feel like I could just talk endlessly about like what I've learned and, and because this is my, you know, this is my fifth book and I've also written two books that weren't published. So I have been at this game for a while. And that's, I guess, the first thing to kind of realize is that there is no such thing as an overnight success. There is just anyone who is, that just kind of comes onto your radar and it feels like they've come out of nowhere. Like they have been working diligently behind the scenes for years for their Mm -hmm. moment. So, you know, give yourself a break. Like it does take a lot of time. Um, My advice, what would I say? First of all, um, if you want to, if you want to write a book, uh, like a novel, your kind of best bet is the novel, the the genre that you already read. Mm. I think a lot of people kind of feel like, well, I read a lot of, you know, um, like erotica, but I, I don't, you know, I, I'm going to write literary fiction. <laughs> it's just like, just write erotica. Like it's obviously you like it and you're good at it because like you already know the genre so well. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it really has taken me a long time to truly understand, like write the book that you would read that it really, there's so much truth in that. Like if, even if you were to start with like, what would be the blurb of a book that you just absolutely would buy? Like no question about it. You read the blurb. It's like, it's an instant click. It's an instant pick it up and take it to the counter. Like, what is that blurb? Like write that blurb and then maybe write that book. You know, like if, if it's something that's going to appeal to you, it will appeal to other people. Like Mm. no man is an Island. Like we are, we are, um, part of a community and like whatever your like taste and um what you like other people will like so as just sort of like a way in then for me it was really just about um a, a regular practice it's very hard to kind of come in and out of things mm. so even if your regular practice is just like one afternoon a week or one morning a week like your brain will get tuned pretty quickly to like okay it's monday morning this is our writing time like click i'll like your writing smarts will click in if you do it regularly enough so you could really help yourself out are being working at a regular time mm-hmm. i don't i mean no right no professional novelist i know just writes when inspiration strikes like that doesn't really exist like everyone mm-hmm. kind of writes all the time um some things that really changed the game for me were hiring a freelance editor mm-hmm. so i wrote a young adult novel then another young adult novel that didn't sell the one that did sell for a very 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 small amount of money and by that type stage i was in my early 30s and living in like a basement apartment with two other girls living on boxed wine, I had no money, like none. I couldn't even afford to go back to Australia. I kind of just thought, well, if I didn't get too bad, I'll just go back to Australia, right? Like that's kind of, yeah. and then I had this, like, I still remember this like light bulb moment, like I was walking down 14th street in the city and was like, oh, I can't afford to go back home because I can't afford the flight. 
Mm-hmm. And I can't afford to like set myself up. Like, mm-hmm. like my parents don't live together in my childhood home anymore. I can't go to either of their places. So like, where am I going to go when I come mm-hmm. back? Like I need to set myself up and I can't afford to do that. So I really had this thought of like, I have to make it work here. <laughs> um, and so part of like when I wrote The Regulars, which was the first novel I sold to Simon & Schuster, I really set about the whole thing in a different way. I was like, I'm going to write a book that sells for a good amount of money that will connect me to like a publishing team that can help me promote the book. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm, and I'm just going to commit in a way that I haven't committed before. Mm-hmm. And part of that was hiring a freelance editor, Sarah Cyphers, uh, C-Y-P-H-E-R. I recommend her to everyone. And I've worked with her on every book since. And like, there's kind of two, like there's, I think there's like two paths into, or there's multiple paths, but two of the common paths in, one is doing an MFA where you, um, you know, you're connected to a community, um, mm. you improve your craft, um, you, you read a lot, um, you get connected to the industry. But if you can't afford that, either your time or your money, you kind of have to DIY it. And that's what I did. And part of the DIY strategy was hiring a freelance editor whose notes are, are kind of like getting an MFA because mm. they're so challenging. I have like, this is her editorial letter for my new book that I'm working on now. It's um, 23 pages, maybe longer than that. Um, it's incredibly long. And as you can see, like I've like underlined and circled like all of these notes that I'm working on. And like such a way forward, such a way forward is, um, and just, I think that I bumbled around in writers groups and giving it to my flatmate to read. And, you know, you're kind of getting all this disparate feedback from like, literally I was like, anyone who read my book, I'll take notes. And that's mm-hmm. not a really good way to do it because you're just <laughs> getting a lot of non-professional writers, like mm-hmm. hot takes on your book. And by working with the freelance editor, which is like a small investment, but I think if you want to get published, like a, a one that is definitely worth making, mm-hmm. you're just going to be able to take your book to a draft that is the next level. Mm-hmm. And, and don't be afraid of, of, of editing. Like I know it, uh, editing is very difficult to have to pull apart a perfectly polished draft, mm-hmm. rip it to shreds and start again in a sense but the work will always be better as a result of it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I DIY'd was creating a community. I didn't know any novelists in New York when I sold my book and I just cold emailed a bunch of people through my, that I'd gotten like after I sold it to Simon Schuster, I like got like emails from my editor, like who do you have on your list that lives in New York? Like I want to be their friend. And then I emailed people and started a monthly writer salon where people come over to my house and we have wine and cheese and we just talk about like writing and publishing and our agents and whatever. And that had been going on. Like we met monthly until COVID for like five years. And it was just this like open door policy of like any writer. And you can do that for any, like any profession you can do that mm-hmm. for. But like, I think that you, you really do exist in a writer's community mm-hmm. once you start writing and you will, like other writers are not your competition. Like your competition is frigging, I don't know, like Jeff Bezos or something like, I don't know, like, like <laughs> the capitalists that are ruining this world. Like other writers who have the same nerdy interests as you are not your competition. They are your colleagues and your friends mm-hmm. and they will help you. Um, they will make introductions for you. They'll put you forward for things. They will recommend you for things. Like it's, I've definitely gotten so many good opportunities from other writers helping me out. So like definitely get out of that competitive mindset. Like it's mm-hmm. not only going to um, 
cause you trouble and start to see your writing community as possibly one of the great like benefits of being a writer because you might not get published. That's the thing, especially in a novel form. Like it's so competitive. There's a lot of luck that has to do with it. That's kind of out of your hands. And I think that the heartbreaking thing when I look back on my writing career is I was unhappy for so long because I was so focused on getting published and I kind of was dismissing things like, Oh, the kind of fun writers that I was meeting and like the parties that I was at, like, they're all part of it, you know, like, and if you, you kind of have to just enjoy what you're doing because putting all of your eggs into, I'm only going to be happy if I get a book published is like a mm-hmm. recipe for a disaster. So enjoy your community, like proactively create one, get an, pay for a freelance editor. Like I honestly can't recommend that high enough. Um, and really commit. Like if you're really yeah. serious about it, commit, just do it all the time and, and know that you might have multiple unsold manuscripts in your bottom drawer most novelists do so yeah that's like advice we've gotten um that a lot of authors have said just just write like just write like keep writing and keep at it so it's a it's a common it's a common recommendation but the freelance editor is interesting too like to kind of elevate your draft elevate your manuscript that's interesting so you're writing another book mm-hmm. Do you want to share a little bit? What's it about? What can you tell us? Is it a secret? Is it? <laughs> I don't know if it's a secret. I haven't sold it yet. So like, here's hoping. But um, it's another ensemble rom-com. I started writing in September of 2020. I just, um, we went to California over summer on like a, like we just let, like we, in three days, my friend, a friend of mine was like, I think we should all drive to California. <laughs> like across country and then I convinced my wife it was a good idea and then we like got in a car and left our apartment and didn't come back for nine weeks and did this like two-week cross-country trip and then just bounced around LA in different friends houses and I wasn't doing a lot of writing then and I came back and kind of came back to New York and you know September it was not as bad as not as terrifying as as it was in the spring but it was still we're still in lockdown Mm -hmm. and my, my last three books were all set in New York City but I just did not feel appropriate to set a breezy, you know, lovey rom-com in New York. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't kind of like take, like get my head there because mm-hmm. it kind of just felt like a lie and it wouldn't be like the New York that I knew that New York was going to come back, but it wasn't there right now. And part of writing is like you're spending two years of your life somewhere else. So I was like, well, where, if I could go anywhere in the world if I could go anywhere where do I want to go for two years and the answer was a beautiful wild tropical island off the coast of Queensland which is where I spent my childhood summers with my grandparents um I invented a and I invented an island and I put uh, a small group of characters on it and it's sort of like a lockdown novel without without lockdown and it's okay. has a queer love story at its giant beating heart. It's another very heartfelt, beautiful story that is very engaged with the natural world. That was like mm-hmm. another thing that came up for me. Um, I think because we just spend so long inside mm-hmm. and, you know, like in New York, it's just like bodegas and buildings and bagel shops. And I just wanted to like, I wanted to know about birds and I wanted to know about <laughs> ecosystems and I wanted to write about all of the quirky Australian animals that live um, there. And, and so it's really engaged with the natural world. It's really engaged with um, 
uh, indigenous issues in Australia as well, which are um, something that I think Americans don't know anything about and that are really interesting. And um, and it's my first queer queer lady love story at the center, like as a, a central love story, which has just been a true dreamy spoony delight. Like I'm in love with both of the characters, and um, I I just I'm just finishing up the second second draft now. All right. I hope we get to see it. I hope so too. <laughs> we're crossing our fingers for you. That sounds so amazing. Like the even the more like natural tone of it being on an island and the indigenous issues as well. I think, I think as Canadians, we're kind of in the same boat, like with the indigenous issues. So it'll be interesting to read about from a different country's perspective as well. So I'm yeah. excited. Can you tell like set time period we can expect it or still don't know? Cause we're excited. Well, um, so we're gonna try and sell it. And then I probably, I, I'm probably on like an every two, like every two years publishing track. So it'll mm -hmm. probably be, be 2023. Um, unless my editor gets very excited and wants to like put it into production straight away. But I guess watch this space. Okay. That's so exciting. I hope we well, get to, forward to that year because also I hope COVID's no longer there. Yeah. Then. From your lips. Yeah, totally. Distant memory. Hopefully by that time, I'm crossing my fingers, but Honestly, it was a joy to read the book. It was it was really fun to read. And I think for anyone who's listening, if you love romance, but if you want something that's like authentic and organic and like diverse and just really grounded, it had to be you it was just kind of fulfilled all of those things for me. So it was really enjoyable to read. And I hope that our listeners who are looking for a book like that, pick up your book when it comes out on May 4th and support and show some love for a wonderful ensemble rom-com. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for reading and for all of your kind words about my book. I'm so glad that you connected with the story and with my characters. Um, really, I really appreciate it. We yeah, romance is like Cass and our and mine, like by bread and butter. So we absolutely like just devoured it. Um, <laughs> and obviously we wish you like the best of success with this novel and we can't wait to see more from you. Yes. Um, so I guess we can go in our ending, which is kind of similar to our beginning. Okay. Um, and if you could say it for us, so normally we, we just end off saying, um, and thanks for listening to Two Book Bitches. So whenever you're ready, you can say that. All right. And thanks for listening to Two Book Bitches. Bye. Bye.